This is a continuation of The Relevance of the Communist Manifesto by Slavoj Žižek. The Limits of Favetung All these complications compel us to rethink the so-called labor theory of value, which should in no way be read as claiming that one should discard exchange or its role in the constitution of value as a mere appearance that obscures the key fact that labor is the origin of value. One should rather conceive that the emergence of value as a process of meditation, by means of which value casts off its use, value is surplus value over use value. The general equivalent of use values had to be deprived of use value. It had to function as a pure potentiality of use value. Essence is appearance as appearance. Value is exchange value as exchange value, or as Marx put it in a manuscript version of the changes to the first edition of Capital, the reduction of different concrete private labors to this abstraction, abstractum, of the same human labor is accomplished only through exchange, which effectively posits the products of different labors as equal to each other. In other words, abstract labor is a value relationship that constitutes itself only in exchange. It is not the substantial property of a commodity, independently of its relations with other commodities. For orthodox Marxists, such a relational notion of value is already a compromise with bourgeois political economy, which they dismiss as a monetary theory of value. However, the paradox is that these orthodox Marxists themselves effectively regress to the bourgeois notion of value. They conceive of value as being imminent in the commodity, as its property, and thus naturalize its spectral objectivity, which is the fetishized appearance of its social character. We are not dealing here with mere theoretical niceties. The precise determination of the status of money has crucial economic-political consequences. If we consider money as a secondary form of expression of value that exists in itself, in a commodity before its expression, that is, if money is for us a mere secondary resource, a practical means that facilitates exchange, then the door is open to the illusion, succumbed into by left-wing followers of Ricardo, that it would be possible to replace money with simple notes that designate the amount of work done by their bearer and give him or her the right to the corresponding part of the social product, as if, by means of this direct work money, one could avoid all fetishism and ensure that each worker is paid his or her full value. The point of Marx's analysis is that this project ignores the formal determinations of money that make fetishism a necessary effect. In other words, when Marx defines exchange value as the mode of appearance of value, one should mobilize here the entire Hegelian weight of the opposition between essence and appearance. Essence exists only insofar as it appears, it does not pre-exist its appearance. In the same way, the value of a commodity is not an intrinsic substantial property that exists independently of that commodity's appearance in exchange. This is also why we should abandon the attempts to expand value so that all kinds of labor will be recognized as a source of value. Recall the great feminist demand in the 1970s to legalize all housework, from cooking and household maintenance to looking after the children, as productive of value. Or contemporary eco-capitalist demands to integrate the free gifts of nature into value production by way of trying to determine the costs of water, air, forests, and all other commons. All these proposals are nothing but greenwashing and commodification of a space, from which a fierce attack upon the hegemony of the capitalist mode of production and its alienated relation to nature 
can be mounted in their desire to be just and eliminate, or at least constrain, exploitation, such attempts only enforce an even stronger, all-encompassing commodification. Although they try to be just at the level of content, that is, about what counts as value, they fail to problematize the very form of commodification, and Harvey is right to propose instead to treat value as being in dialectical tension with non-value, in other words, to assert and expand spheres not caught in the production of market value, such as household work or free cultural and scientific work, in their crucial role. Value production can only thrive if it incorporates its imminent negation, the creative work that generates no market value, because the former is by definition parasitic on the latter. So instead of commodifying exceptions, and including them in the process of valorization, one should leave them outside and destroy the frame that makes their status inferior with regard to valorization. The problem with fictitious capital is not that it is outside valorization, but that it remains parasitic on the fiction of a valorization to come. A further challenge to market economy comes from the exploding virtualization of money, which compels us to reformulate thoroughly the standard Marxist topic of reification and commodity fetishes insofar as this topic still relies on the notion of fetish as a solid object whose stable presence obfuscates its social mediation. Paradoxically, fetishism reaches its acme precisely when the fetish itself is dematerialized, turned into a fluid, immaterial, virtual entity. Money fetishism will culminate in the transition to an electronic form of money when the last traces of the materiality of money will disappear. Electronic money is the third form, after real money, which embodies its value directly. Gold, silver, and paper money, which, although a mere sign with no intrinsic value, still clings to its material existence. And it is only at this stage, when money becomes a purely virtual point of reference, that it finally assumes the form of an indestructible spectral presence. I owe you 1,000 euros, and no matter how many material notes I burn, I still owe you 1,000 euros. The debt is inscribed somewhere in the virtual digital space. It is only with this thorough dematerialization, when Marx's famous old thesis in the Communist Manifesto that in capitalism, quote, all that is solid melts into air, unquote, acquires a much more literal meaning than the one he had in mind. When our material social reality is not only dominated by the spectral, speculative movement of capital, but is itself progressively spectralized, a protean self, replaces the old self-identical subject, the elusive fluidity of its experiences replaces the stability of owned objects. In short, when the familiar relationship between firm material objects and fluid ideas is turned on its head, objects progressively dissolve into fluid experiences while the only stable things are virtual symbolic obligations, it is only at this point that what Derrida called the spectral aspect of capitalism is fully actualized. However, as is always the case in a properly dialectical process, such a spectralization of the fetish contains the seeds of its opposite, of its self-negation, the unexpected return of direct relations of personal domination. While capitalism legitimizes itself as the economic system that implies and furthers personal freedoms as a condition of market exchange, its own dynamics brought about a renaissance of slavery. Although slavery had become almost extinct at the end of the Middle Ages, it exploded again 
in the European colonies from early modernity until the American Civil War. And one can risk the hypothesis that today, in the new epoch of global capitalism, a new era of slavery is also arising. Although it no longer affects the legal status of enslaved persons, slavery acquires a multitude of new forms. Millions of immigrant workers in the Saudi Peninsula who are deprived of elementary civil rights and freedoms, total control over millions of workers in Asian sweatshops, which are often organized as concentration camps, massive use of forced labor in the exploitation of natural resources in many Central African states, Congo, and others. But in fact, we don't have to look so far as these countries. On the 1st of December 2013, a Chinese-owned clothing factory in an industrial zone in the Italian town of Prato, 10 kilometers from the center of Florence, burned down, killing seven workers who were trapped inside, living and working in conditions of near slavery. So we cannot permit ourselves the luxury of looking at the miserable life of new slaves far away in the suburbs of Shanghai, or Dubai, and Qatar, and hypocritically criticizing these countries that house them. Slavery can be right here, in our own house. We just don't see it, or rather we pretend not to see it. This new apartheid, this systematic explosion in the number of different forms of de facto slavery, is not a deplorable accident, but a structural necessity of today's global capitalism. Well, that'll do it for part four. Zizek is a departure from the norm here at the Epoch in that he is foremost a philosopher and a critical theorist. He doesn't hesitate to criticize ostensibly progressive movements or communist parties that employ capitalistic practices. And I've seen him branded as something of an opportunist, but he is in many ways more attached to the core tenets of Marxism than most of our fellow DSA members, and he's much less naive. Keep in mind also that this is just one modern interpretation of society, though a strikingly insightful one, and I think for that reason his critiques of existing socialist projects can be painful to read. That's enough out of me. The Menagerie will resume with the section entitled, Unfreedom in the Guise of Freedom. And until then, comrades, enjoy your epoch.